This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. This phase shift in technology now allows us to automatically identify patterns in data. Translating that to healthcare, that means we can now automatically pick up diseases in scans, whether it's an X-ray, a CT, or an MRI. We can pick up patterns in genetic data, or blood tests, or your electronic medical records. And by doing that, what it really does is it democratizes care. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. We call it Llama for short. I'm Peter Bowes. And this is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, this is another episode from TED-MED, the annual conference focusing on health and medicine. Today, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, AI, and how it has the potential to significantly improve our chances of living a long and healthy life. I'm joined by Chris Mansi. Chris is the founder and CEO of Viz. AI, Viz AI. He is a former neurosurgeon and, as he says in his profile, clinical innovator, entrepreneur and optimist, which is always good to hear. Chris, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thank you, Peter. Former neurosurgeon, so you've moved from treating patients directly into the development world and looking at new technology. Absolutely. So I worked in the NHS um, up until 2014 and took a time out for sabbatical at Stanford. Um, university in the US, ended up working in the field of artificial intelligence, medical imaging and workflow, and ended up staying and founding viz.ai. And here we are now in beautiful California. Absolutely. Out in the desert. It doesn't get much better than this. Where did you come, where did you originate from in the UK? Uh, from Newcastle. Oh, right. right. Way up north. My part of the world. I was, we are, I was born in, exactly, yes, <laughs> I get that a lot. I was born in Sechfield. Ah, south fantastic. In, in County Durham. Lovely. So, uh, yes, it's good to meet a fellow northerner. Not that you sound particularly normal, but, uh, but there we go. So yes, welcome to the podcast. What got you particularly interested in this area? In 2015, five randomized control trials were ended early. They proved beyond doubt that this new form of treatment for the most devastating types of stroke called large vessel occlusion strokes was very effective. This treatment's called mechanical thrombectomy. It's where as surgeons or interventional radiologists or interventional neurologists, we put a wire into the groin, grab the clot, and remove it from the vessel directly. Um, this was game-changing. It meant that if you had this treatment in time, you walked out of hospital. If you didn't, you ended up often paralyzed on one side of your body and often unable to speak. A devastating end to your, your life. And how common is that? Um, in the United States, there's about 280,000 of these large vessel occlusions every single year, um, and I guess around 50,000 in the UK. So very common. Yes. And very significant in terms of, uh, we talk a lot about obviously longevity and the, the pillars of, of lifestyle, diet, exercise, all those good sensible things to do to live to a, a good age. This is something that can descend upon you in a moment and you have no warning of it. Absolutely. Um, stroke is the number one lifelong disabler in the world. And so if there's one disease that you can avoid as you age, it is a stroke. Um, symptoms of a stroke include weakness in your arms or legs, speech disturbances, 
um, facial droop, and we use in a mnemonic called FAST. You know, if someone has facial droop, arm weakness, or uh, speech disturbances, you need to act fast and call 999. Right, because speed is of the essence. Speed is of the essence. Every one minute, two million brain cells die. Every one minute of delay, on average, adds a week of extra disability to that patient. So we need to move very, very quickly. And is there anything, presumably there are in terms of lifestyle choices, that we can do to prevent the likelihood of a, or at least reduce the likelihood of a stroke? Yes, absolutely. Diet and exercise. So a healthy diet, like the Mediterranean diet, um, weight loss, um, and regular exercise, just as recommended um, both in the American Heart Association and by NICE is is of the essence to avoiding a stroke. Smoking avoidance as well is absolutely critical. Maybe top of the list? Um, yes, it, it, uh, if you, if you don't smoke, you probably reduce your risk, lifelong risk of a stroke significantly. Hmm. That's, that's good to hear. And, uh, I, I think, um, let, let's talk about the company then that you formed, um, Viz AI. Let's go back to the beginning and, and the basics of it. What's the, the idea behind it? So when I was, um, in surgical practice, uh, you know, I trained my whole career to get good at operating and, um, that was my focus. And when the patient came to me in the operating room, we had to move quickly and accurately to do the right thing and make sure that we remove the blood clot or the, um, the tumor. Um, but there were a few cases that made me, made me think whether that was the right focus of mine. One young lady that I spoke about in my TED talk um, was a trauma patient who was hit by a car. She was 31 years old um, and had what's known as an, a, a, an acute subdural hemorrhage. And when she came to me, the operation went extremely well. I was able to remove the blood clot, relieve the pressure, and the team was very happy operation went well we thought we just saved a young woman's life but 12 hours later this young lady was was dead and later when I looked into the case I learned that the deciding factor in her death wasn't what happened in the operating room it was the four hours it took to get her into the operating room by the time someone had recognized the disease alerted the right doctors got the team together coordinated a surgery we were too late there was just too much brain damage and this is so relevant to the case of stroke in a stroke, every one minute, two million brain cells die. So we need to move extremely quickly. Every one minute adds a week of, of di- extra disability. So we need to move extremely quickly. So um, at the time, I was at Stanford University working um, with uh, artificial intelligence in the medical imaging field. And what we realized was we were able, instead of going through the usual processes, which involves lots of different experts and lots of lengthy communication instead the initial scan would be read instantly by artificial intelligence everybody is alerted at once the on-call specialist whether they're at home or in the hospital can review the images on their phone the care team assembles the surgeon's prep and all this happens not in five hours but in minutes and by having fewer steps by um, saving time we can save lives and reduce disability um, so that at the end of your life you avoid having all of the devastating effects of a stroke. Now just to, 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 to go into that a little bit more deeply, you talked about um, cells dying. Does that start, is a stroke 
instant or is it cumulative? In other words, from beginning to feel the symptoms of the facial droop and the tingling in the arm that you mentioned, is that when the damage is done or does it get worse as time goes on? So there's two main types of stroke. Um, The most common is called an ischemic stroke. It's when there's a blockage in one of the blood vessels in your brain. Just like when your plumbing's blocked, it means that that blood can't go past it. And therefore, the brain tissue doesn't have oxygen being delivered. And when that happens, the brain cells start dying quickly. But you often have what we call watershed territory areas, which are parts of the brain. They're supplied by another circulation. Um, And that collateral circulation often keeps the brain cells alive, but not for long. So we can do this procedure up to 24 hours. We had some good evidence from a trial called the Dawn trial last year, which which extended the time window. Um, But that doesn't mean you can wait. If if, if you have a stroke, the quicker you get to hospital and have this treatment, the better. And that was going to be my next point. Obviously, the key here is getting the patient to the technology that you're talking about. And so that is still the crucial window. So I assume the next step is education and education of people that this is possible and that a life-saving scenario is possible if only they get to the hospital in time. Absolutely. And um, it's wonderful for me to be able to be on your podcast, Peter, because I'm able to talk to people out there and say, if you have any of these symptoms, weakness, speech disturbance, facial droop, Call 999. If one of your relatives has this, call 999 and get to hospital quickly because time really matters. Once you're there, the the fantastic doctors in the NHS will do the rest. And just to translate that for US audiences, dial 911 if you're in the United States. I guess the same applies. You you get to the hospital and and hopefully under this scenario, you, you could be saved. Yes, that's what the evidence shows. As long as we're quick enough and remove that clot and restore the blood flow, we're able to save brain tissue and therefore hopefully allow you to walk out of hospital. This really does show the the vast scope of AI in medicine, doesn't it? It really does. So artificial intelligence is not going to replace doctors. It's going to be this aid, this facilitating technology that gets the right patient connected to the right doctor before it's too late. Um, And by doing that, by winning the race against time, that's how we can dramatically improve patient outcome and medical care. And the key advantage of the tech that you're talking about is, as you've explained, that lots of different people involved in this huge team of potentially people that will be involved in treating this patient, the information gets to everyone straight away. So it might be getting to someone who isn't appropriate to deal with the situation, but it might get to the precisely the right surgeon that can save this person's life. Exactly. I can give you a comparison with what, what happens without the technology, if that's helpful. Yeah, that would be very helpful. Yeah, so today, if a patient's admitted with a stroke, they get a scan. And that scan goes into a queue. It's reviewed by a radiologist, then a neuroradiologist. Then the emergency physician um, will refer the patient to a neurology specialist and then a neurosurgeon until eventually the patient is transferred for intervention. Um, And that process takes on average between three and five hours. And as I said before, every one minute, two million brain cells die. So it's clearly too long. And it doesn't have to be this way. The future that I see and the future that is a reality today in many hospitals um, where our technology is installed is one where the patient still gets a scan. 
but now the scan is instantly and immediately analyzed using artificial intelligence. Everyone is alerted at once. The on-call team review the images on their phone and communicate in their phone. The care team assemble, the surgeons prep, and the patients move to surgery. You're talking about number of cells dying. That doesn't necessarily mean death, but it can mean the end pretty much of life as we know it. And it can mean a fairly miserable few months or even years ahead with partial brain damage. Yes, often years. Um, you know, a, a strokes can kill you. Often you will die from the sequelae or the complications of a stroke, like pneumonias, because you're not able to get out of bed. But often it's the most devastating when a patient has had damage to a whole hemisphere, a whole half of their brain, meaning that they're completely paralyzed on one side of their body and unable to speak. And that is not a nice way to end your days. Hmm. Broadening this out, what have you, I often ask this of people I speak to, what have you learned about your own potential longevity and lifestyle based on the science and the research that you do? And, and how do you apply it to your life every day? Um, well, I'm in my 30s and I think it's really important um, in your 30s and beyond that you are thinking about your 60s, 70s, 80s, hopefully 90s, um, and laying down good practices and good health. So daily exercise. I enjoy uh, running in the morning and a healthy diet are incredibly important. Um, and so just um, being very connected to the unfortunate patients who, who get this disease, one of which was my, my grandmother who ended up living for eight years with it, um, has shown me the importance of good health in the younger years continuing on through into your elder years and do you and, and i often do wish that more people would acknowledge this in their 30s and 40s and that it sometimes takes time it might be not until you're in your 50s and your, your hair starts to turn gray and you, you begin to in quotes feel older that people acknowledge that these issues are important it still seems that we have a generation maybe even younger than that who feel oh, i'm going to live forever and maybe yeah. that doesn't apply to me. i think i think what happens is when your friends your peers um, start passing away you start to become in touch with your own mortality. And for most people, luckily, that doesn't happen until you're older. Um, but I think it is important if you can be aware of that. And I think for, for doctors, doctors are often a lot more aware of that. Whether that leads to better health and, and good behavior, I don't know. <laughs> um, but it's certainly the awareness is very helpful. When you come to, clearly, as I say, you've, you've moved away from the clinician aspect of your career and you've moved into technology, you come to events like this. Are you, I mean, I mentioned that you describe yourself as optimistic about the future. Are you inspired that if we harness the technology that we have available to us these days, that we can make great strides in terms of healthcare and prevention in the future? Absolutely. So today is a really exciting time in the world of technology and particularly technology applied to healthcare. A new form of artificial intelligence called deep learning was discovered only in 2012. It was actually by a British scientist um, who was up in Canada called Professor Hinton. And what they found was that this new form of algorithm was exponentially better than what has come before. And it was winning competitions like ImageNet, which is the yearly Olympics of computer vision. 
Um, and so this phase shift in technology now allows us to automatically identify patterns in data. Translating that to healthcare, that means we can now automatically pick up diseases in scans, whether it's an X-ray, a CT, or an MRI. We can pick up patterns in genetic data um, or blood tests or your electronic medical records. And by doing that, what it really does is it democratizes care. Now, no matter which hospital you go into, with technology surveilling what your data is, we're able to surface problems that could potentially lead to you being treated and cured and disease prevented. And really, for 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 us, um, we invented a, a new regulatory clearance together with the, the US FDA called computer-aided triage. And what that's about is giving patients and doctors back the gift of time using artificial intelligence. And we do that by improving access to this life-saving th- treatment by making sure that the right patient, the right doctor, is connected at the right time. Um, so I'm very optimistic about the future, but what that means is we have to all, all the in- wonderful innovators that I've met here at TED and, and beyond um, really need to focus and work hard to bring this technology to true clinical care. Um, otherwise, it was just a nice toy. Mm. And maybe just step back. It just occurred to me, as you mentioned the phrase artificial intelligence, AI. Step back for, for those people who are not involved in this every day. How is the artificial intelligence acquired? In other mm. words, where does the knowledge come from to be able to make the judgment about that patient in that moment? So what we do is, we, in, in our case with imaging of the brain, we'll take uh, CAT scans or CT scans of patients' brains, um, some of which are normal, some of which show a stroke. And we'll get experts, so neuroradiologists, to label these scans. So they'll put a category label, this patient has a certain type of stroke um, and they'll also do what we call segmentation where they'll color in the disease on the computer and that's basically teaching the algorithm what the answer is and then we put it through training and the training runs the raw data without the answer and tries to come up with the answer and in the end it's compared to what the answer really is if it got it right, then those neural nets strengthen. If they got it wrong, then those neural nets weaken. And you do this millions of times until eventually it gets to human levels of performance um, and potentially superhuman levels of performance whereby it can recognize disease that potentially humans couldn't even see. And also, I suppose, maybe not at the level of superhuman, but just better than human because... It doesn't get tired. uh, We we, we use the phrase, we're only human, and and mistakes are made. I mean, presumably this scenario is a a scenario where those mistakes simply are not made. Um, So mistakes can still be made. So the accuracy of our algorithm is in the mid to high 90%, which is about the same as the accuracy of top neuroradiologists for, for cases if you look across the different studies. But what's interesting is that's much more accurate than the average doctor, right? Um, And you're absolutely right. It doesn't sleep. It works the same day or night, night or weekend. And we know that there's a big discrepancy between weekend care and care during the week, between day and night, for obvious reasons. And so technology can standardize this. Um, It can standardize it 
within a hospital, but also across different hospitals and across different countries where the level of expertise might not be as good as it is in the UK or the US. So this is just one one aspect of the use of AI in medicine. What do you, maybe crystal ball time, what's the next great frontier in terms of using this kind of technology with, with medicine? So I think the next big frontier is that it becomes part of everyday medical practice. Just like today, um, at least I struggle to get anywhere without Google Maps. I believe the technology like ours will be so prevalent in hospitals that you wouldn't dream of doing clinical practice without being supported by algorithms in this kind of technology. It will make doctors faster and more efficient. It will help doctors do what they do best in much less time. And one thing that we keep on hearing is it gives them back, the doctors, the gift of time. So they have more time to do the really high-level cognitive things that the algorithm can't do yet, such as making a subtle decision on whether a patient gets this type of treatment or the other type of treatment. And so it will become increasingly prevalent throughout healthcare and we'll start to see increasingly improved outcomes. And this must have significantly changed the way in which doctors are trained and will will continue to do so, that this element of, of their work is so integral and will be more so as we move forward. Uh, it, it's happening already, yes. I mean, it'll take time, but if you look at the large radiology conferences, you see more and more radiologists have producing their own algorithms. And they're the ones who are controlling the technology, along with the other clinicians, the pathologists, the surgeons. Um, and so it will become an integral part of training. Chris, thank you very much. If anyone wants to dig a little bit deeper than we've been talking today, how could they find out more and maybe follow your work? Um, so you can go to our website, which is viz.ai. V-I-Z or Z, depending on where you're from, dot A-I, no dot com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, Viz AI. Well, I shall put those details in the show notes for this interview on our website. All the best. It's really, really good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. And if you want to go to our website, it's the Lama Podcast, Live Long and Master Aging, double L-A-M-A, podcast.com. We're in social media at Lama podcast and if you want to listen to us we're available now on multiple podcasting platforms including stitcher and apple podcasts many thanks for listening FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.